Good afternoon from a very hot London and welcome to today's FS Club webinar, Influence Alpha, Shaping Apex Decision Making in Government. In a world of increasingly activist states, government decisions matter. What insights do we have into Apex Decision Making in Government? Apex decisions are, ones, are level one decisions that can be consequential for business and society. And today, Professor Alexander Evans from the London School of Economics will be sharing his insights into Apex decision making as he explores how the British, American and UN systems operate. It is my pleasure to introduce Professor Alexander Evans, OBE. Professor Evans teaches public policy and technology at the LSE and directs the MPA in data science for public policy. A career member of HM Diplomatic Service, he has worked in 10 Downing Street, the Obama Administration State Department, and headed the UN Security Council's Daesh, Al-Qaeda, and Taliban expert missions. Among his UK government roles, he has been Strategy Director in the Cabinet Office, Cyber Director in the Foreign Office, and Deputy and Acting High Commissioner to India and briefly Pakistan. So he is incredibly well-placed to brief us on APEC's decision-making today. If we haven't met virtually or in person, I'm Charlotte Dorbrashley and I manage the FS Club here at ZN. I'd like to warmly acknowledge our very generous sponsors who enable us to continue to bring you a wide range of thought-provoking content across finance, technology, economics and politics. We'll be recording this session and it will be available to watch on our website within 48 hours along with the slide deck and we'll also be holding a 20-minute Q&A session after the presentation. So please use the GoToWebinar chat facility to send your questions in to me early and then I can feed them into the conversation. Now, uh, without any further ado, um, over to you, Professor. Carla, thank you very much indeed and uh, thanks all for joining. I'm going to put up some slides. Uh, because not only are you sacrificing uh, an afternoon on a sunny day, uh, you're sacrificing uh, uh, to another PowerPoint presentation. I hope that's all uh, up and working. Um, so, look, thanks very much for joining. If you're joining looking for the secret heart of the clock on how to influence decision making, I'm afraid I haven't got a BuzzFeed list or a, a TED talk or a set of answers for that. But I wanted to share um, some thoughts on, on uh, research and teaching that we do around uh, apex decision making. What do we mean by that? It's really looking at level one decision making in government. Uh, so looking at cabinet level uh, and a small cluster of uh, people out with that, uh, including special advisors, including some officials, um, but not necessarily extending uh, much, be, much beyond that. Um, so my first... Uh, Sort of perhaps central question is how does strategic decision making work in government and how can it be uh, how can it be shaped? Um, uh, oops, sorry, but uh, let me see if that comes back in. Uh, uh, so this talk suggests it's largely about people, but not very many people. Uh, ideas, and I think ideas are more important than we sometimes give them credit for. Uh, we're often thinking about trying to shape decisions about policy or regulation when actually the, the wider idea may have greater shaping force. Uh, influence, which of course is not the same thing as access and timing. And it recognizes that Apex decision-making, the small in-group that makes uh, major government decisions is more about court than cabinet. Uh, even if the, uh, uh, the cultures of decision-making may vary uh, by principles and group dynamics. What do I mean by court rather than cabinet? I think it's really tempting to look at formal structures, to look at hard wiring, 
but as all of us, all of us would know from uh, whichever organizations we've worked with or in, um, whether you're talking about working in a bank or an insurance company, a management consultancy, uh, a nonprofit, a, a, a regulator, or a bit of government, um, each organization tends to be framed as much by the prevailing cultural norms and by informal networks uh, as by who's technically on the executive committee, who actually attends board, uh, who is in a particular profit and loss uh, leadership role uh, or in uh, a, a strategic leadership role. And one of the central arguments I would make is, is actually perhaps somewhat an argument for blending the qualitative with the quantitative. That may sound eccentric coming from the LSE, but remember the LSE is the London School of Economics and Political Science, open brackets, we have anthropologists and historians here too, close brackets. So biographies really matter, uh, and biographies matter including age. Uh, and to give an example of that, uh, you'll see here on, on the left, uh, just a citation from a bit of uh, research in 2005, that suggests that older leaders in very personalized regimes, uh, exhibit A, Vladimir Putin, are more likely to initiate and escalate militarized disputes. Um, so there is actually a, 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 an impact that, uh, that the nature of an individual in, mo in that decision-making role will have that isn't there on the day, it's there as an accretion and accumulation of what they've had through their life and organizational biography. So your attitude towards, uh, towards financial risk might be very different if you went through the, uh, you know, through any particular financial crisis, uh, your attitude towards uh, profit and loss uh, may be different if you've gone through a buoyant period when you're, uh, when you're getting a great deal. And equally in government, uh, a lot of government principles are heavily shaped by, in particular, crisis points and reference points that shape not just their time in office, but the longer term period through which they've been uh, politically and socially active as adults. So let me give a couple of examples of that. Uh, in defence and security, uh, a lot of the framing for uh, 1990s and 2000s policy uh, was of a post-Cold War or a Cold War cusp generation, uh, where the Cold War was the originating, original reference point, but the 90s became the new reference point. Uh, and the path dependency around that suggested that things might roughly feel similar to how they'd been in the 1990s. That's evidently not turned out to be true. The path dependency for people coming into the 1950s in British government decision-making or American decision-making was uh, anchored through World War II, which shaped a very different set of uh, learnings and lessons and biographical inputs. The second thing is how systems actually work. Uh, uh, and uh, on the left here is a, uh, you know, a, a, a photograph I took in a whiskey company in Scotland. Uh, other good whiskey companies are available, of course. Uh, but this is, the, uh, this is a company that names all its uh, blends differently. And I would argue that uh, along with the central bottle that you see here, conversations and ruminations, uh, but actually a lot of um, the nature of decision making is not shaped by existing plans or policy development or long-range strategies, uh, but it's actually developed uh, much more in, in, in ad-hocracy rather than democracy. Uh, and that ad-hocracy is triggered by events, it's triggered by crises, which very much shape decision-making, uh, and it may be moved by the, the changing moods or patterns or issues of the day. 
Uh, and informal networks of decision making may be much more important to decision making than the formal. Um, so it's less about the cabinet meeting, just as all of us who've been to uh, or participate in committees and governance, uh, a lot of the business is not in the room. So if you, to paraphrase Hamilton, if you want to be in the room where it happens, if you really want to shape the room where it happens, you probably want to be engaged with that group of people uh, in advance of the day, in advance of a decision, uh, not on the day itself. And so you see two other bottles here, roll with the punches, that's a crisis uh, element, and electric, uh, electrochemistry, uh, chemistry, uh, which probably speaks a little bit to the challenge of divining how government actually works. The second thing I want to speak about briefly is just time and thinking long matters in government, and it's really difficult. All governments, I would argue, both democracies and authoritarian states, uh, true of my experience in the UK, US and UN systems, aren't very good at thinking long. They're not very good at drawing on the relevant expertise uh, or, uh, you know, uh, escaping uh, being in the mode of fighting the last war, sort of having as a reference point the last big thing rather than the next big thing. And many apex decision makers uh, lack time for reflection. And this is a core theme of this book by Richard Neustadt and Ernest May. It's still a classic, uh, the uses of history for decision makers. Um, and just as many organizations struggle with institutional memory, uh, who knows uh, what the prehistory was uh, even 15 years ago of the organization you work for now, um, in government, there is often quite a short-term institutional memory uh, of uh, policy, even if uh, policies, you know, a, a policy framework has been around for uh, decades uh, or longer. Uh, I think it's quite useful to think about cross-cultural reference points here. Uh, um, maybe some people on this call uh, will be or will have been parents of under five-year-olds. There's a glorious Norwegian word for this, tidsklemmer, which literally means time squeeze. And it's used to explain why people are stressed, miss things and have no time. And I would argue that public policy and apex decision making is about tidsklemmer uh, on, a, on a regular basis, but it comes sometimes with greater consequences as a result. And that's not just um, the course of a decision making day for a minister in the UK or for a member of the principles committee, a member of the cabinet in the United States, uh, but it's the constant stream of uh, pre and post work uh, represented here by a typical. Uh, uh, Secretary of State red box. Um, so the challenge of um, having a range of decisions that you have to make late in the evening, uh, early in the morning, uh, the inability often of a system that wants that level one apex attention, but isn't always very good at discriminating either in what should actually go up to that level and what can be dealt with at a level two or level three in government, or indeed in compressing advice, analysis, um, request for decisions into a really lucid short form, but is punchy enough um, to ease decision making along the way. And here there is a truism, at least about the British and the American systems, which is there tends to be a greater favour to words than numbers, uh, and probably numbers over data. So I think it's a very welcome uh, focus now increasingly on data analytics and data science. I would say that, wouldn't I, Gov, as somebody who runs a, a data science and public policy masters in public administration. Um, but in essence, you, you have a, a system and an advisory um, culture that is framed towards the written word. Um, 
And yet again, if you if you flash back to um, how uh, how we might individually prefer to make decisions, some of us are more visual, some of us are more numbers based, uh, some of us are are more uh, words based in terms of our advice. Some of us prefer to um, sit in a room and and, and uh, uh, talk over advice rather than receive written advice. I want to briefly dwell on, on the idea of a court rather than cabinet. Uh, and this, I think, would find an echo in the lived ethnographic experience of most people in organizations. Who matters in most organizations? Is it really uh, the people uh, uh, on the organogram at the top? Or is it a cluster of people who have access or influence on those at the top? And I would argue it's often the latter. Whose advice is actually listened to? Uh, gatekeepers are really important. You know, it's tempting to uh, uh, to think of uh, gatekeepers as second order characters in the in the court, but actually a principal uh, uh, private secretary, a PPS or chief of staff in in non UK parlance um, to a minister is probably the uh, official who spends most time with that minister day to day, week to week, uh, even more than some of the special advisors who will not necessarily always be present for every meeting or involved in every uh, issue. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I think back to a friend of mine who was the chief of staff to the um, chief executive and then the chair of Citigroup uh, globally. And what you had, if you like, was the, that top floor of the Citigroup HQ, where the chief of staff was present, as was the chair, as was the chief exec. And actually, a range of the level ones in City sat on the floor below. Uh, so chiefs of staff, PPSs, these principal private secretaries often matter a great deal. But part of understanding a court is also recognising that there are a lot of people in the court who claim to have influence, who claim to be senior and have voice, but actually don't necessarily have a great deal. Now, it's very rare, uh, you know, in, when people reach their anecdotage, may uh, retire or are pushed out or suffer from that joyous uh, or uh, humiliating career ending incident. The temptation in memoir writing or the retrospectoscope is to exaggerate how much influence or power you had on a principal. Uh, so I like this novel. This is Ian Pierce, an instance of a finger post where it's, it just has one, you know, the, the, the principal narrator reflecting on the fact that uh, he didn't find it displeasing to be uh, uh, have a period away from the uh, court. Uh, because actually in the entire country, Fewer than half a dozen people have true power. The rest are governed in one way or another. And I have more than enough, more than sufficient contact with those who are truly of significance. Uh, so the ability to actually map, uh, uh, you know, power, if it effectively um, decision influence alpha, if you like, uh, within organisations, is I would argue an exercise of uh, ethnography and political insight. Uh, increasingly important in a world where the state is getting more activist and larger uh, and is uh, becoming, you know, there, there's a, a tendency back towards more interventionist states as well. Is strategic influence possible against this backdrop? Uh, one could argue that in a, in a US or other framework where you have more political appointees, more porosity coming in, uh, actually you have somebody who might have come in from being a, uh, you know, chief exec of a credit ratings agency and may end up in a position in the Treasury in the United States. Uh, or you have somebody who's been out in the private sector and ha has actually done something around profit and loss rather than regulatory or public affairs or government affairs, and then might uh, come, into, come into government. We're a much more closed shop in the UK system. 
Um, so let me uh, just you know, canter through, um, through, I think, some of the core precepts. And again, these are not going to be particularly novel. Uh, you know, the, the, the menu always includes direct and indirect routes, lobbying, but I think risk that inputs end up digested at mid-level. There can be an awful lot of attentive activity uh, that promises and claims to reach uh, apex decision makers or people very close to them. And actually a lot of that activity, I, I think, can be sort of demonstration investment. Uh, but with the emphasis on demonstration rather than investment. What is clear is that access to core decision makers, which is usually the prime minister, secretaries of state, some SPAD, some special advisors, uh, who are uh, particularly the policy special advisors to secretaries of state, and some officials, but I would say that probably fairly sparingly, is important when you're looking at trying to influence that key ultimate decision. Um, but actually, uh, in terms of uh, you know, uh, direct influence, shaping principles before they reach high office uh, is often more effective, I think, as a, as a vehicle to shape their worldview, shape their preferences, uh, shape how they might reach out to uh, others for evidence, for advice, uh, for feedback, and how they might respond to some of that advice as well. And clearly the indirect tools are important to a highbrow mass media. Now, why do I put both in there? Uh, partly it's recognizing that I think a, a really good piece in The Economist or the Financial Times is often quite carefully digested uh, by uh, uh, apex decision makers uh, and is, you know, is, is much more likely to be digested than a, a long form policy memo or white paper. But equally, uh, you know, something that is gripping that has sort of tabloid grip uh, that sort of Daily Mail headline, uh, the way to uh, encapsulate something, um, whether that's around some of the debates right, right now around the ULEZ in London, uh, or some of the debates around how uh, poll tax has been characterised, or how uh, the cost of living crisis has been characterised. Uh, finding finding a kind of, you know, if you find, like finding a, a meme or a brand around this mattered even in a pre-social media age, and it matters ever more in a social media age. And of course, the think tanks and commentariat. But recognizing again that that think tank and commentariat space is often quite small. I've worked in a range of it, uh, both in the UK and the US. And, it, and there's a temptation there to exaggerate reach and impact. Because if the metric, you know, it's, it's tricky finding metrics that properly measure uh, the think tank space or the commentariat space, what are you measuring? Are you measuring the number of readers? Uh, the reach, uh, who turns up to events, uh, volume of media coverage. Um, and these are often used as, uh, as uh, uh, proxy measures for uh, influence. But you might have a think tank that has relatively little uh, media coverage, but actually has really quite significant influence and reach on two or three principles in that apex decision-making community. But I want to also focus on, on the thing that's often missed out. I think uh, the temptation is to focus on what, uh, what one might call the West Wing. The West Wing is where it all happens, right? The West Wing is 10 Downing Street. It's, it's the White House. It's uh, a minister's uh, office. It's the cabinet table. But actually, the East Wing is where most uh, policies uh, and decisions get implemented. The East Wing is, is what's the machinery of government that's going to follow through on making sure that a new, uh, a new regulation uh, is operationalized in a particular way, making sure that a new investment flows in a particular way. 
Uh, and one of the lessons of, of uh, government writ large in the UK, and I think this is probably true of other governments too, is there's a long and inglorious track record of non-implementation. So even taking an administration uh, that was uh, as radical as the Thatcher administration in the early 1980s, uh, a detailed National Audit Office uh, set of reports in the mid-80s suggested that there was sort of certainly a, a, a failure rate of about 40% against intended uh, policies for that government. And I would, I would suggest at least for most governments, you could probably do a, a reasonably similar exercise uh, with at least declassified or publicly released materials. So if you really want to um, have influence on the, on the decision, it's not just about decision, it's about the follow through and the implementation. And that's about technical and policy inputs going in at mid-level. That's where the grade seven uh, or the PS14 in the US terms, mid-level engagement is super critical. As a course is shaping uh, for parliamentary time, not much use having a great idea if you can't get the time in parliament to actually initiate uh, the primary or secondary legislation that you need to do things. And I would also argue that engaging with contrary opinions or perspectives in the cacophony of a public policy debate, having, um, you know, getting in early to those who have different views, I think is a, a productive enterprise rather than a disruptive one. And finally, this sense of patience and persistence. It's really challenging if you're pursuing short-term goals around tax and regulation or investment policy. It requires applied focus on longer-term issues, which are often harder because uh, politi political and bureaucratic dynamics, and that's both civil servants and politicians, tend to be kind of short-term by default. And here, sustained and non-transactional relationships over time really help, uh, uh, and not always mediated by uh, lobbyists or public affairs executives. As does good branding, as I said, what's a gripping title or story around the proposed new policy? And finally, there is one advantage that people can uh, draw on, which is the fact that there is an infectious disease in almost all governments, but certainly in democracies, called initiativitis. And it's the hunt for new announceables, uh, for uh, new signature policies uh, that can help frame uh, the wider effort of governments to engage with voters and their publics. And that means there is often appetite for something new against a system that is not always very good at innovation or delivering novelty. And that I would argue is, is another space where actually influence alpha can be particularly effective, not just on a change of government, uh, but during the constant nature of governments as well. So perhaps I'll stop there. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Professor. That was fascinating. Um, Thinking of all of the range you said of influences and obviously culture and you mentioned even, you know, age of leaders and their background, um, you know, is, makes a significant contribution to that. What is the difference between um, democratic and non-democratic governments in Apex decision making? So, so I think I think you know, actually, if you look at non-democratic governments, and a lot of my work is, is focused on that, too. You know, they're, they're equally as bad at the long term as democratic governments. So I think there's, a, there's sometimes a bit of a populist mythology uh, that authoritarian states don't have to worry about public opinion, they do long-term policy better. Uh, the difference though is they, they have even weaker feedback loops, they have very little or, uh, or no accountability, um, and they still have that uh, inherent bias towards short-termism uh, for apex decision makers. Um, but I think what's interesting is, is the point of continuity across most systems. And that is basically that this dominance of informal networks, informal influences of decision-making uh, that is shaped by that, 
And in fact, what's interesting is many, many societies have a word for that. The Russians have blat, which means pull. The Chinese have guanxi, which means connections. Pakistanis have safarish, which means rec recommendation. So, so stepping back, we tend to be tempted into this idea that we have formalized decision-making in um, uh, Western democracies. And actually that focus on excessive structures and formalization misreads not a corrupt nature of uh, intricate informal networks, but more the fact that informal networks, in, the informal is normal and it normally trumps the formal. Interesting. Um, moving on to the civil service, uh, Graham Elliott has asked, shouldn't an effective civil service provide the long view and shouldn't the culture cause politicians to acquire that of the civil service? So look, I mean, I, I think I think that I, I personally, I teach anticipatory policymaking at the LSE. I think long range policymaking is needed uh, now more than ever. Um, I do think there's a role there for the civil service. Um, but but a chunk of it is is you know it's back to Hamilton again. Uh, are you going to be in the room where it happens if you're presenting the uh, study on uh, the next 25 years of local transport infrastructure, or are you, are you going to be in the room where it happens when you're presenting a decision about what should we do next on uh, concrete uh, the concrete challenge in schools in the UK? So I think what almost inevitably happens is you end up with uh, apex decision making fora where the, uh, the urgent and the immediate crowds out the long term. Um, there is, I think, a, a, a properly kind of engaged effort in government to try and, try and bake in some of that longer term thinking. So you have foresight communities, uh, you have efforts to develop strategies, like, rather like the integrated review on foreign policy, on, on which I was a part, or uh, Tony Blair's earlier foreign policy strategy on which I, I, on which I worked. Um, but the challenge is those documents you know, they, they, they do have a shaping influence, but they don't necessarily uh, have a week-to-week -week or day-to-day -day effect on decision-making. And what there's often been a dissonance around, again, across multiple governance, this is not exclusive to the UK, is connecting a money with decision-making. And, and if you like, tracking uh, consequential effects of policy over time. Uh, reading National Audit Office reports, uh, or sort of, you know, uh, learning, if you like, the deep internal history of pensions policy in the UK tends to be the preserve of academics or kind of wonks who will speak on on, uh, on Bloomberg rather than people in the system itself. And there's, there's a very poor short term memory system uh, in government. So. Going on to these informal um, channels that influence decisions, um, especially in Western governments, uh, have there been movements to change this? To sort of well, move, so. you know, move the, limit the power, really, of the informal um, factors, networks? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think in some ways it, it's the conversation that dare not speak its name, because because let's face it, for most of us, human beings tend to engage in informal connections as well as formal discussions. Uh, and you know, if we were to take any decision that we've made, a decision uh, to you know, uh, take a particular job or not, to do a certain degree or not, to, uh, um, to live with a particular partner or not, we will all have stories that we tell about how we made those decisions. Those stories don't always correspond with how the decisions were actually made by us. There's sort of a black box that's quite difficult to read about how we make decisions. Um, 
so I, 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 I just think there's something here where the effort to formalize can help. It's, it's be, you know, where the, the area where it's probably most successful is in terms of intelligence national security analysis or terrorism risk, uh, where um, the, the importance of having impartial assessments are so key, uh, but there has been structural reform to try and strengthen those. Uh, but I think it, that becomes much more difficult when you're talking about uh, you know, the regular kind of business of policy decisions, uh, big or big or medium sized in government. Yeah, no, no, that's very interesting. And what about differences like, um, we, we, we touched on age and that, but what about um, women-led um, governments and things like that? Well, I don't know the literature um, well enough probably to comment across the field on, on, on academic uh, stuff on it, uh, but I would suggest this, you know, there's, there's a, a pretty established corpus of evidence that shows that men interrupt in meetings most of the time. And it's pretty normalized. Uh, and so for a uh, just taking a level one who is not the prime minister, you know, if you're a cabinet secretary, are you likely to interrupt as much as male colleague uh, without that necessarily being viewed as counterproductive to making your case? Um, are you likely to be more long term? I, I would argue that there's, I, I, I'd be skeptical if there was a gender difference around uh, long term thinking, but, that, but there may be. I don't know whether research has tried to measure that. Um, but in terms of um, female leadership, obviously, again, you've got a, a smaller group of, uh, of case studies to work from. Uh, you know, a Margaret Thatcher is not the same as a Liz Truss or a Theresa May. Um, so I think it, it becomes it's easy to extrapolate from an individual. I worked for um, uh, Richard Holbrook and Hillary Clinton in the State Department in the first Obama administration. So I could talk about Hillary Clinton, but that, that's not going to then generalise about uh, female leaders writ large. The, uh, it seems like the short termism has created a lot of the problems that the UK is facing at the moment, because it's, you know, with COVID and Brexit, it's going from one crisis to another. And I was, you know, thinking that, especially coming from New Zealand, where we have a three-year term, it's very hard for politicians to focus on the long term, having to be campaigning every three years. But the UK um, government term is a lot longer, but it doesn't seem to have changed that. Are there any, what are the solutions apart from having a longer term, which I'm sure the public would be happy with. Look, I, so, as I said, I think at the start, I don't think there's necessarily a magic bullet for uh, you know either for influence or for improving long-term decision-making in government. Uh, I, I had fun in the last year and a bit uh, trawling through all the discussions of pension policy in the UK cabinet since the uh, 1920s, um, and since the 1950s. There's been a discussion about raising the, pen, the retirement age from 65 to 67 since the 1950s, but it's in the too difficult box most of the time. Um, I, I, I think the, you know, there are a range of initiatives that have been tried in different in different spaces. One is to try and pursue sort of uh, is there a bipartisan framework for decision making on something that is relatively defanged in political terms, so not around sort of a culture wars issue. But for example, is there something that one could do around uh, long-term financing of mortgages uh, where things might feel different? Um, so I'm, I'm very encouraged today, uh, given I normally do gloom, um, I'm very encouraged today that there's been, I think, regulatory clearance for the first offer on, on full-term, full-life fixed-term mortgages in the UK. 
Uh, now, yeah, an interesting question about what that means, but but you know, question mark can can that kind of offer uh, help change the nature of affordability and predictability in the mortgage market for people struggling to get on the housing ladder uh, in a in a in a you know, admittedly house prices are going down, but in, in an environment where house prices are still out of reach for many people, especially in London. Um, uh, some kind of, you know some jurisdictions have, have created futures commissioners Wales for example um I think you know there's there's a, a very mixed views about how effective some of that has been um and even when you create sort of foresight units or strategy discussions the challenge a little bit is what's the so what because if you don't have a decision attached to a discussion what you end up with is a lovely kind of breakfast discussion or a kind of after dinner discussion you know AI what does it mean for our society? Um, but are you actually then trying to shape a decision off the back of it? So there's, I, I would argue one way to improve things is to better connect a lot of that work that's done, you know, which is not sort of deep academic research necessarily. It's, it's applied um, policy thinking, applied long-term thinking. But to what extent can you connect some of those communities more effectively with decision makers? With a quite, you know, you want to bring in somebody again with that sort of PNL or uh, focus delivery focus to think about how do you translate that into what does that mean for decisions, when, what, where, how. Yeah, the um, cross-party collaboration is key there, and it is quite concerning with the increase in culture wars that will move away from that. Uh, da Dan Feeney has asked, are there too many spaz and media minders in UK politics? So, Dan, I mean, it's, it's a question that comes up pretty regularly. I mean, I, I would say I, I'm not particularly persuaded that's true. I mean, the SPAD numbers have oscillated between, I think, you know, roughly 100 or so up to, I think I think they maxed out at maybe 140, 145. If you break that down, that's 140 in a, in a, a, a wider public service of more than 400,000. That's a pretty tiny number. Um, you break it down further, you've probably got three... Uh, overlapping communities within those special advisors. You've got people who are actually doing substantive policy advice. So effectively providing a, a more politicized version of what a civil servant would do around, you know, what, what should you do about um, the challenge of uh, the train network in the UK uh, with potentially a declining uh, income base because of working from home or working remotely. You've then got the media handlers who are, you know, who are often quite the dominant group in some ways. If you start to look at uh, a breakdown of SPADs and what they're actually doing, uh, you know, they're there to watch, uh, you know, to, they're there as much to work for their principles or to work for their political party uh, as they are to, to work for a wider government. And then you've got people who are doing a party liaison and political party engagement, which tends to be quite a small number of SPADs. It, I, I wouldn't want to see, I've worked in the US system where there's a lot more political appointees. I wouldn't want to see a system where um, the uh, upper strata of government as a whole was occupied by um, political appointees because I think it would lend itself to uh, actually much much greater hyper-partisanship and you run the risk of also uh, a much deeper uh, well of sort of individualized patronage from ministers. Um, but, I, but I'm quite sympathetic to the argument of opening up and having a much more porous um, uh, senior civil service in the UK. Um, at the moment, the civil service feels a little bit like you get your golden ticket to get in and then you sort of, uh, you know, you busily seal the windows to make sure that nobody else can get in after you. 
Um, and I, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan, even, even if it disadvantages existing civil servants, I'm, I'm a big fan of trying to encourage much more prosody, hybridity, people shifting in and out. You do need to guard against conflicts of interest. Um, you know, I've left government, um, but I'm, I, you know, I can't lobby the government, for example, on, on issues linked to LSE, which is entirely reasonable and proper. And that's one of the conditions of me moving here to be a, a professor. Um, but but I, I, I would be thumbs down for, uh, you know, much more politicization, thumbs up for much more porosity. And does 140 or so feel too many? I'm not sure it does. I, I, think, I think it becomes a, an excessive focus of, of a sort of um, the Westminster bubble to see who's up, who's down, who's in, who's out. Uh, but against the wider cohort of people who are around, that's quite a, that's quite a small number. Is that number of 140 been pretty steady over the decades or has it been increasing? No, it increased. I, I mean, I think actually if, this is from memory. There's a very good study by Andrew Blick uh, um, based on his PhD on special advisors. But I, I, I think the biggest lift was in the major government, actually. It was, that, you know, I, the, the assumption is it was always a Thatcher government that led to a big spike. Um, I think a lot more of it um, spiked in the 1990s and then effectively has been pretty sustained ever since. Now, you know, some of those individuals obviously have more, you know, are better known public figures than others by virtue of are you the kind of, you know, you know, whether you take Dom Cummins or you take Peter Mandelson, whoever it might be, you've, you've got figures, or sorry, Alistair Campbell, you've got figures who are uh, much more visible and much more known. Um, but it, it's still, you know, if you break that down and then look at who's doing policy advice as distinct from uh, press and, and spin doctoring, it's a relatively small number of people. Uh, and there is also an argument that you want, you know, it, it's not unhelpful to have both that professional detached and one would hope impartial and evidence-based civil service advice, but also sometimes that, that being going in in parallel with slightly more politicised advice, again, whether you've got a government that's of the left or the right. Yeah. Um, moving now on to American politics, um, Sam has said, given the upheaval uh, in America over the last few years, what has been the most noticeable change in diplomacy uh, between the UK and the US? And has this affected um, strategic decision making in the UK government? Look, I mean, I, you would expect me to say this, wouldn't you, Gov? But I mean, I think the US-UK relationship works pretty effectively at, at, at many levels. Uh, and it does so because there's, there's a lot of muscle memory. Uh, so, you know, my entire career in the Foreign Office, I'd work with American counterparts. Uh, I also, you know, lived in the States. I worked in the State Department. I went to, uh, you know, I did a mid-career program in the States. So there's kind of, I, I think, a comfort level. Uh, and that also exists, Charlotte, with, I think, you know, New Zealand, Australia and Canada. But it's, but it's, it's very strongly present with the U.S. But clearly, the U.S., you know, politics is getting into a more volatile space in the United States. Uh, the election that it come, you know, the, the, the um, presidential election that comes next in the U.S. will be deeply consequential for uh, the pathways and choices of the United States. But diplomacy is about engaging with the governments in power and making sure that you keep ties with oppositions. And in that way, diplomacy is not altogether different to all forms of engagement with government. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we've had a few comments coming in just saying that it's been a very um, interesting discussion. So thank you for that. Um, we think we're almost out of time. Um, 
So once again, thank you very much, Professor, for sharing your time and knowledge with us. Um, I think we'll all go back and start thinking what are the factors um, influencing our decisions and work and home life from now on. Um, and also thank you to the audience for um, logging in and contributing to the discussion today. And of course, our sponsors who make these webinars possible. Um, don't forget to check out the forthcoming events on our website. We've got lots of more diverse uh, webinars coming up. And if you are in London, uh, next week, why not come along to our autumn mixer, um, at, which will be at the Bank of China on Thursday. You can register for that um, on our website. It would be great to meet some of you in person. Thank you very much. Thanks, Charlotte. Thanks, everybody. Bye bye.